I know that this particular episode looks super long, but in the show notes, there are markers for the different segments of this episode so you can easily jump around the track if you're pressed for time. So, no worries. I'm recording to this episode of the show in April of 2020. And as we all know, almost 100% of the United States is under a stay-at-home order because of the novel coronavirus. And almost every country in the world today has a confirmed case of COVID-19. That is the disease which is caused by the novel coronavirus. And more and more people are being asked to stay at home all over the globe. Honestly, according to health officials, your home is the safest place to be to protect yourself from contracting COVID-19. But how about those for whom staying at home is not safe? People who experience abuse. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, an average of 24 Americans per minute are victims of rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. Cities like Xi'an in central China, I hope I'm pronouncing the city right, <laughs> they saw significant upticks in the cases of divorce immediately after the stay-at-home order was lifted in China. And according to the New York Post, New York City today has also seen an uptick in reports of domestic abuse or what we call intimate partner violence, IPV, since the city was ordered to stay at home. Now, I agree that we are all stressed out these days. The anxiety, the paranoia, the fear, these are all real. But these are no excuses for us to pour out our frustrations in the form of physical, financial, digital, or emotional abuse on those who are closest to us at home. How do we deal with an abusive relationship? How do you identify and label abuse at home? What are the signs that a partner is abusive? What are the things that you fear as a person who's being abused? As the abuser, why do you think you are abusive? No, that is if you think you are. Why should you get help, both the abused and the abuser? How can you get help? Today on the show, I have a guest with whom I discuss her ordeal through intimate partner violence, the terror, and the different stages of abuse that she went through. It's a deep and personal story, I can tell you that. That's why it's long, because I really didn't want to cut her off so much. And through her story, most of the seven questions that I posed earlier will all be answered. So just sit tight and pick out what suits you the most. But I'll be back at the end of the story to just highlight on a few more points that I feel are worth repeating. My guest today is Dr. Takbay, and I caught up with her in autumn or fall of 2019. So I have a rose garden on the side and a tulip garden there, but of course it's seasonal. So like I have yellow tulips come out, red tulips, and then the orange tulips, you know, and it comes out in the different seasons. So it's good. So that's the the little round porch over there. That's what it is. Yeah. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, sorry, I love flowers. <laughs> Who would have thought that you love flowers? <laughs> I really do. For the, I mean, what is it? For the longest time, I just, I buy myself roses or whatever flowers. I do floral arrangements as well. So I just buy myself something, make myself feel good. I put it right at the center of my table. Are you kidding me? For real? Yeah, I do that a lot. I have pictures here and there. If you knew Dr. Takwai three years before now, she would never have struck you as someone who loves flowers. She always seemed to be in a constant state of distress. And today, Dr. Tuckway loves flowers? I used to do flowers when I was, you know, maybe like 20 years ago. I mean, I, I think that my mom loves flowers, so I must have picked it up from, from her. Yeah, but then, you know, sometimes, so, so like... Yeah, you know, life happens and then we lose ourselves. When you're in a relationship with an abusive partner, you begin to lose your self-esteem, your self-worth, your self-value, and actually, your personhood. Dr. Tukwe has both a PhD and a DSCD or something like that. You know what? I'll let her say it herself. It's actually called DSCD, so Doctor of Science in Dentistry. Doctor of Science in Dentistry, that's yes. DSCD. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then I have a BDS, Bachelor's of Dental Surgery. And okay. I'm, a, I'm on my way to get a doctor of medicine and dentistry, which is the same thing as a BDS, but BDS, Nigerian degree, and DMD, U.S. dental degree. And in spite of having two reputable medical degrees and on her way to the third, she still felt very inadequate and incompetent because of domestic abuse. I began to doubt myself, who I was, even though I didn't have problems with self-esteem or anything like that. I come from a family where, you know, my father really, you know, he affirms me a lot. He affirms all his kids a lot, you know, and he shows us a lot of love. So I, I see him love my mom and I see him like, and he shows love to all of us, his kids. You know, I, it wasn't like I was in a hurry to get married or I saw trouble at home and I wanted to leave home. No, I saw the way my parents were and that was the only idea I had of marriage. And so, you know, when it was time and, you know, I felt like, okay, this person likes me, you know, I'm pretty easygoing and all of that. I got married and um, I began to have a lot of self-esteem issues because, you know, of the way I was spoken at, you know, or of things that, you know, I would hear things like, well, your parents highly think about you, but the spouses are the ones that really know who the wife is oh really yeah so like i i began to hear those things and i began to ask myself is there something wrong with me you know and then i i started going through significant you know abuse emotional physical abuse okay before we get to that yeah at the point that you got married did you already have the bds your yes bachelor? i did you already had you already a doctor yes i was and that was in nigeria yes so you went through the rigors of, you know, dentistry, med medical school and all that, graduated, mm -hmm. and then you began to doubt yourself. Yeah. Even I after knew. that kind of achievement. Well, you know, and that's the thing. You know, we have to, and permit me, you know, to say that you have to learn to listen to the right voices. Because if you, if you hear enough of negative things constantly, you begin to see yourself in light of that. So true. Yeah. And for me, that's kind of what it became because um, I, I had a lot of people respect me growing up. I felt like I was a little 
more advanced for my age because I remember there were people that were my friends and were married before me and the husbands that are very much older and all of that will call me to kind of report their wives, you know, and vice versa. And I would, you know, come in and say, even before I was married. So like I was um, CFG. Uh-oh. Kristen. Uh-oh. Shh, don't talk. Kristen Fellowship Group. <laughs> yeah, sorry, CFG. <laughs> yes, I was in CFG, which is like the um, Christian Union version of most universities, but at College of Medicine, and I was the vice president of my fellowship. So, like, it was usually, as a vice president of the fellowship, you take up a lot of, like, motherly roles. So, like, I was like a mom to a lot of people, you know, counseling people and all of that. And all of a sudden, you know, it was like I couldn't do anything. And constantly I was being told that I I was not useful. Let me put it that way, you know. And I began to believe it. So um, I went through a period of time where I had to... I had to stay home and, you know, for like seven months around the time I was expecting my baby. It was a very complicated pregnancy. I almost lost my life, almost lost my child too. But thank God, I mean, he's nine year old now. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. But so, yeah. So for me, um, that period I stayed at home. And so I was supposed to have gone to serve that year. And I had to defer my service because I was heavily pregnant at the time, you know, I was as a National Youth Service Corps. National Youth Service Corps, yes, in Nigeria. And so I, I finished my house job and I stayed home for seven months after that. And it was like, okay, I have my baby. You know, I was told, you know, my husband then um, was comfortable. So he said to me, well, you don't have to work. And, but, you know, the seven months... <laughs> There were nightmares, I'll have to say, for me. For example, I'll give an example. We come back from, he comes back from work every day and I was at home seven days. So he will come and then I didn't have a house up. I didn't have anyone staying with me. So it was me and a baby that was very demanding. He wanted to be carried all the time. So like sometimes we'll come back home and food wasn't ready. But then I, I kind of try to explain that, listen, if I, I mean, I try and do things when the baby's not awake. You know, um, if he's awake, then I have to attend to him. Can we get like a bouncer, you know, something that I can put him on? And even if he's crying, like it's a little soothing for him. Just, you know, put him on something so that I don't have to carry him all the time. You know, and I had a 10 kg baby at birth, so he was a big baby, you know. And so I said, you know, just please let's get something at home, which I didn't think it was asking for too much. I mean, even people that were not rich had those kind of things at home. And I just said, you know, so that I can put the baby down. The only thing we had was a bassinet. So, I mean, it's in the room. This can be like in the kitchen or by the sitting room. And, you know, I can put the baby down. And even if he's crying, there's something, you know, that is kind of bouncy or soothing him that he can be on. And it was like... I had to kind of beg and beg for it for months and explain again that, you know, I will cook for you if I had help, somebody to hold the baby for me. And I will still cook. It's not like I'm not going to cook, but, you know, I'm sorry, this is just why your food isn't ready at the moment. And, you know, like if the food is cold, you don't want to eat it, things like that. So there were demands and and it was constant kind of, what have you been doing since morning? What have you been doing since morning?
one day he had just come into the house. I, I really can't say we had an argument that, you know, it wasn't like we had an argument per se, but he came back and he was a little grumpy. You know, that day I had cooked, so it was one of those <laughs> food wasn't ready days. Yeah, so I had cooked, food was ready. He came back and he was a little bit, um, I don't know. I really, I wasn't, I'm not too sure what the word was, but um, he was a little more aggressive. So again, then I was young. I wasn't so mature in that, you know, when someone is, when someone is in a bad mood, just let them go, you know, and let them be. So I kind of had asked, you know, you know, what's going on? And the response I got, I didn't like it. So I just said to him, oh my God, you know, if they've upset you at work, please don't transfer it to us at home. You know, and I, that was the, that was the only thing I remember saying that night. The houses in Nigeria sometimes are not so big, especially the more modern houses. So we had like a king size bed in a small room. And you know, so we had the only thing that could fit into that room was the king side bed and the baby's bassinet. And the bed was against the wall. Out of convenience, I would sleep on the side close to the bassinet so I can, you know, wake up to feed in the night and things like that. And this was a man that wasn't involved in the care of his child, you know. Um, you know, all those diaper changing is that person that when the baby is crying, he's going to tell us to leave the room. You know? <laughs> yeah, he was that kind of person. And uh, so this day, he had come back from work, like I said, and he was just in the mood. So I sat down like a dutiful good wife, I put the baby to sleep and I sat down at the edge of the bed on the side I usually sleep and I was, you know, I was doing a little Bible study. And so he opened his eyes and he said to me, he said, you're not going to sleep on this side of the bed, you're going to sleep on the other side. So again, I was trying to explain that, you know, it's going to be difficult. I have to carry the baby, crawl up to the edge of the bed to get a comfortable feeding position and all of that. That and this is, you know, this has just been a comfortable place. Why does that have to change tonight? And um, he was like, um, if you're not going to listen to me, then get out of the room. So I thought it was a joke. <laughs> you know? And because he said it and he slept back. So I'm like, you know, I just looked at him like, what's going on? And I just sat down and I continued, you know, reading my Bible. And he opened his eyes and he said, you're still there. I want you to get out of this room. And get out of this room became get out of this house. At that point, I was beginning to wonder, you know, what's happening and all of that. And before I knew it, he left the room. He went to get, we call it Omoro, <laughs> you know, the long stick that... We used to make food, right? And he got that and he just came to the room, had just, you know, started beating me up. Um, <laughs> I I have heard of slaps that, I've seen it in cartoons where you slap people and they see stars. <laughs> yep, I saw it that day. Are you kidding? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. For the first time in my life, I saw it. And then he asked me to leave the house. And this was like 11 p.m. or past 11. And I, I said, okay, I'll leave the house. But, you know, his car was parked behind my car. And the way the houses are then, like, they build them very modern and nice. But, like, there's a, the, the space is not so much. So, like, he would have had to move his car for me to move. And we stayed in a very secluded area of Lagos. And um, 
I, I, at some point, I saw that he wasn't joking about what was going on, and so I backed the baby, and I'm like, it's okay, I'll leave, you know. And I was wondering, how would I get out? It's not like in the US where there are cars all over, you yeah. know. But I, I backed the baby, and all of a sudden, he just dragged, you know, the three-month-old baby from my back and said to me, "I didn't come to the house with the baby, and you know, I'm leaving all by myself." This went on for one hour. Finally, he pulled out a knife. Are you kidding me? Yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, well, but for someone that had dealt with me for an hour already, I knew that whatever else was following, because his eyes sparked fire, you know, like... If this were a movie right now, everyone's going to keep wondering what's going to happen to the baby. It just, there's a knife in the hands of the man. Funnily, everyone knows the end of the story because exactly. the baby's he's nine alive. years old. <laughs> he's alive. Yes. But yes. how did you get over that night? Did you eventually leave? Oh, yeah. I, I left, but I didn't leave that night. So, of course, you know, because I had seen the extent of, you know, what he had done that night. And he had seized my phones. I didn't say that earlier. He had seized my phone, so I couldn't call anyone for help. So all of a sudden, I, I kind of just went on my knees because I was like, the baby, you know, I don't want him to harm the baby. He had pushed me and the baby to the wall and all of that, you know. So, like, I was just really scared for I was scared for my life. I was more scared for the baby in his hands, you know. And um, not knowing I had screamed for help, the generators were on so i don't know if nobody heard me or nobody wanted to get involved i don't know but you know nobody had come to the rescue and like i said this had gone on for one hour so i just knelt down and i started begging and he, you know he started commanding go outside go put off the generator do this do that do that and i was just like a zombie just doing everything i was told to do because i'm like i don't want to die <laughs> you know and when he finished he was like and get in there and go and, you know, initially it was like, and go in there and go and sleep in the guest room. Then later it was like, okay, go and sleep, come and sleep, like commands, go and sleep in the room. I finally was able to really beg and plead to, I'll stay in the room, but please let me sleep on the floor, you know? And when I saw he was sound asleep, I started packing my bags. I was, I was so scared. I mean, I'd seen him do a few other things in the past, but none of them had been had as bad as it was that night. Because that leads to a question I was going to ask mm-hmm. you. Now, for some people, they say that, well, didn't you see the signs before you got married to the person? I mean, is this a surprise? Many people feel like when you are abused um, in a home, especially when it's an intimate partner violence, mm-hmm. the IPVs, they believe that... They're usually signs. In your case right now, would you say that... um, Did you see the signs? Did he look like it? Everybody asks me that question. And the truth is, no. Um, I mean, like... (laughs) He looks so quiet and gentle, like he can't hurt a fly. I mean, you've met him before. I mean, that's, I have to ask this question <laughs> for people who are listening because, yeah. yeah, meeting him, honestly, he looks nothing like what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and again, we caught it for two and a half years. And I mean, like people say when they're abusers before, you must have seen a sign or two. The truth is no. 
so I'm going to ask you. So um, you start trying to pack your bags next morning. Yeah. Um, did you tell anybody about this? Did you report this? Did you? So um, the next morning, again, like I said, initially my phones were seized, um, seized from me by him. And he woke up very late, you know, in the morning. He gave me back my phones. I went into the guest room, which is on the other ha- end of the house, and I called one of our pastors, who's a lawyer. You know, so the pastor came and tried to talk to him. He wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't give him audience. He wouldn't as much as come out and talk to him. So the pastor got even more scared and said to me, I can't leave you in this house. So he said, go get it, you know, go take a bag, like the baby's bag, and, you know, um, I'll take you to his parents' house. <laughs> and I came back with three trunks. <laughs> three, three trunks, you know, three suitcases. And because I had packed all night, and for me, I had said to myself, I can't do this. You know, that wasn't the first abuse, but that was the first extreme abuse. You know, something happens the first time, you're like, oh, maybe it's my fault. You know, maybe I provoked him, maybe I upset him, you know. Uh, I mean, it could be as little things as we're in the car driving and I'm sharing my opinion, like where we're not arguing, but we just have a difference of opinion about a matter. And he just, you know, stops his car and says, get out from the car. You know, things like that. Or, and, you know, or says to me, oh, if not because I'm a Christian, again, you know, by the way, I married a Christian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I married in church. So, um, yeah, so, you know, like, say things like, if not that I was a Christian, I would have divorced you. And I'm just wondering, where, what is this coming from? But I'm like, okay, maybe I provoked him. Maybe I did this. Maybe I did that. <laughs> so, the, the pastor comes, the pastor takes you out of the house. Yeah. That whole episode goes. Now, I know that um, you were still together. So, I'm assuming he came to beg? Oh, or yeah, how- absolutely. So, we were we were apart for seven months. And um, in that seven months period... Um, Did you say apart? Yeah. After that incident, we were not together for seven months. Oh, really? Yeah. So, during that period... I mean, because, of course, I was scared. You know, who does that? Wow. So where did you go to your parents? Yeah. So the pastor actually took me to his parents' house. I mean, I stayed with them for about a week, not up to a week. And I left for my parents' house. And so after seven months, I went back home. (laughs) And so this, all this begging and everything happened five times over. Um, wait a minute. When you say five times over, are you saying that he had to beg five times before you came home within seven months, or oh, no. you had five episodes five of other episodes after having that. to leave the house yes. and him having to come back to? Yes, five other episodes. This was before you came to the United States for your residency. Um. So one no. So I think one major episode happened. This was the one major one that happened. Before that, there were other minor things that were like maybe a month, a week or two weeks, kind of, you know. So I'm not counting that as part of the five. Yeah, so, but um, in total, the major episodes that took like at least a month, you know, happened five times. So five times, why did it go back? (laughs) Um, and I ask this yeah. because I'm trying to figure out what's in your head space, yeah. your mind. You, know, you already said something about being a Christian girl, mm-hmm. trying to figure out life. You know, yeah. you prayed about your marriage. Mm-hmm. You 
to the best of your knowledge, did everything that you were supposed to do, even though yeah. you were not perfect. Now mm-hmm. I can imagine when you have more questions than answers yeah. and yeah. your headspace at that time. For some people, they just want to coast guards and people they don't even want to believe in anything yeah. again. Yeah. So the, the headspace is really, really, is important to me because I feel mm-hmm. like some people listening, mm-hmm. um, their headspace, what they're thinking about really could determine what actions to take so i want to know yeah for me it was a a number of things again i mean and that's why i give the background of being (laughs) the vice president of my fellowship and i'll go step by step in how i felt the first one was you know i've counseled people i've um, helped a lot of people that were going through tough times in marriage and i've been an example to people how would i now say that is my own marriage that did not work wow so it was like shame. I didn't see it as um, his failure. I saw it as my failure. It was as a, a personal as a, as a failure. Pers- yes, as a personal failure. I'm, I'm not advocating divorce in any way. Um, but then again, I felt like, how would I explain to anyone that I was divorced or separated even, <laughs> you know? So like it was something I, I couldn't talk about. The other thing was the church, you know? I mean, church again, you just feel like, you know, people would ostracize you. People wouldn't really um, support you. And and I, I'll talk about that a little bit later on as we go along. And the third thing I thought about was I didn't want my son to grow up without a father, you know, without knowing his father. I didn't want him to have father issues in life so those were kind of the the things that i talked and then you know like the way we started out we there was a lot of family involvement as well from the beginning because i really i believe in respect for elders again i couldn't tell my parents from the beginning the extent of what was going on so my dad initially just thought maybe it was um just you know immature and just needed a little more counseling guidance you know in maturity and things like that and he will make his marriage work like my dad tried to mentor him gotcha you know my and which that's what my dad enjoys doing he mentors a lot of couple and so like he too felt i mentor a lot of couple and they're you know they walk out so why would it now be that, you know, it's my daughter that is having issues? So for me, it was a lot of different things. I felt like a failure to my parents as well. I was the, as at that time, I was, I, I'm the second child, but I was the first to get married. And I just felt, you know, <laughs> the wedding was a 5,000 guest wedding. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yes. Wow. So I said, you know, you know, without the money these people spent, of course it was, again, I say it was a family wedding. It wasn't, you know... I mean, both of us couldn't have put that together. But, you know, so like there was a lot of family investment in it. And I just felt like I didn't want to feel at least my parents too. So it was a lot of different things. What happened that made you begin to say to yourself, you know what, maybe I don't have to go back again? So, I mean, the first thing was that, you know, I felt like once beaten, twice shy, but then I've been beaten five times. I must really be a fool. (laughs) You know, that was the first thing. And um, And like you said, you had the um, abuse that was kind of like minor or right. Yeah. You know, that you just overlooked. Yeah. But these five times you're talking about is a major, major abuse. Absolutely. Absolutely. So initially when this thing started, 
again, like I said, I was blaming myself. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I said something. And then I'm like, you know, you read a book or you hear something and you're like, "Mm, this is not abuse. You know, it's just a one-off incident and all of that. So that was how I felt at the beginning. I refused to call it what it really was. I will cover it up with many other things in my head, you know, to say to myself that I wasn't going through abuse. Um, and that's what I did for a long time. I wasn't a proud person, I, you know, I don't think I'm a proud person in any way, but I, I mean, I did not have self-esteem issues, you know, and I began to have significant self-esteem issues. And then I began to doubt myself as a person. I didn't think I was successful which actually brings me back to all the residency and everything because when I did the residency it was because I wanted to be financially independent when I did the PhD it was to prove to myself that I was worth something wow yeah so that's why even after you got to the United States and you did your residency mm-hmm. you went ahead to get your you call it the DS- Doctor, yeah DSCD Doctor DSCD. Science in Dentistry yeah because you wanted to prove to yourself that I was worth something yeah, because, I mean, my self-esteem was significantly impacted by all that I had gone through in the marriage. It was like, I was looking for self-worth. And it was like, well, if... I mean, and at that time, as a child of God too, I felt like I'd feel good. Like, I'm like, you can't make your marriage work, you know? I felt that way at some point before I began to realize that, listen, this is abuse. So when I began to call it what it really was, you know, and I saw the way it was impacting my life. I never really knew what was going to happen the next moment, the next day. You know, there was a time that, you know, he just locked us out. My son and I locked us out of the house and um, I had to stay with people for two months before I got my own place. And um, Wait, when he locked you out, did he know where you were? No, he did not. And then, so after two months, how did he get you to come back into the house? No, so he he didn't get me to come back at that point, you know, because I'd seen the way these things kind of drew me back and I kind of had to start my life all over again. So I refused to move in with him. But so he came to beg and all of that and slowly he moved into my house <laughs> that's what i would say like we were we were actually you know supposed to go through therapy um we went once to say counselor and um, he decided that he didn't want to go back again because the counselor was very she was very blunt and she said to oh she said listen your marriage is an icu it's at the verge of a divorce and if you don't do something drastic you guys are not going to make it and I knew she was saying the truth because I was, I was merely hanging on for life, you know, and, um, he just felt, why would, you know, and she was a Christian counselor. Why would a Christian ever say something like that? She doesn't know what she's saying. She's not respectful of me. Okay. So he didn't go back. He never went back again. So we were working with other people that maybe spoke his language a little more. I mean, well, that's how I would say it because at least he kind of, you know, went to them a little bit. I want to hear what he would, his version of certain stories that you've painted. Okay. I'll, I'll give one, you know, right now. I remember there was a day, like one of the things he did in the past was he lost his house key. And after he lost his house key, he decided to take my own key, my own spare. I then I think, you know, I had two sets, gave him one and he lost his own. So he said to us, he said, if, if we were not in the house, that's my son and I, that he wouldn't lose his key because as far as he's concerned, he knows where he puts his stuff. So he decided to seize our house key. And so I remember this day, I got home early 
I left talk, you know, because I was really wondering, I was in my residency then and I was really wondering all, you know, like, like what's going on, you know? So I decided to leave work early that day and go talk to him at home before, you know, I picked up my son from school and I went to him and he was like, he doesn't want to talk. Okay. And then at that point he was like, well, I'm going out. When you come back, we can talk about it. So I said, okay, please. I need to, when are you coming back? He said he didn't know. So I said, please, I need the key so that when I pick up our son from school, I can have access into the house. Since you don't know when you're coming back, you know, he refused to give the key to me. At some point he was like, okay, I'm going to walk to the library, come and pick the key from me. And I'm like, you're going out from the library and I have to go pick our son up. You know, why don't you just give the key to me? And he, you know, he refused. So, you know, trying to avoid an argument, I let it go. I missed my first bus, second bus, third bus, because he still refused to give the key to me. We walked back into the house from the library, and, you know, I kind of was expressing myself on the road, like, why are you treating me this way? You know, again, this is my own copy of the key. You lost yours. You know, can I just, why, you know, like, I guess frust I was frustrated, and I'm like, why? Like, what have I done to you to deserve all of this kind of treatment, you know? Well, I had to go into the house. I was very upset that day and I got into the house and he kind of was ignoring me and was just doing his stuff, you know, and I decided to put my hand in his pocket and get out the key and leave, you know, the house. And as I, I was in the, he was in the bathroom in front of the mirror and I did that. As soon as I put my hand in his pocket, he just grabbed me by the neck and shoved me to the wall. Sincerely, when that happened, I was very scared because I remembered you know, all that happened in Nigeria. And I just said to myself, if I die here, nobody's going to know. I don't know what story will be told, but I just thought about my son, thought about my poor parents, you know, and in fear, I pushed him. And because for me, like I said, I never saw my parents raise their hands on each other. So I wasn't brought up in that environment. So in the past, it wasn't like I couldn't defend myself. I was not used to that. So like I'll submit myself to his beatings kind of, and just kind of try and shield myself. But that day I said to myself in fear, I really was just afraid that was all, you know? And I'm like, if he kills me here, this story is going to be covered. My poor son, my poor parents. And I pushed him in fear. Just one little scared push from me. He fell into the bathtub. Because the honest truth is that if you both sit, he's more believable than you are exactly because of his persona so exactly. i can imagine how that no one's gonna believe you if anything you know fatal happened there exactly exactly so then you pushed him he gets into the bathtub he, he fell into the bathtub and of course i was scared because i just kind of played in my head what if he hits his head you know all of the, nothing happened to him he just kind of fell but i i was so scared you know of what could have happened and i went on my knees i was begging him this is me that's had just been shoved to the wall, you know, my with, and it was being choked. And when every time he says that story, you know, he said that story to people in the past, he would say, you know, there was a day she just pushed me. It was God. I almost hit my head. I would have died. It would never say what happened before that. Oh, he never starts from the whole He never, no, nope, nope. He would never say, like, I've never ever heard, heard him say this is what led to that and so I, I look like the bad girl right you know like how and then you know the person looks at me why would you ever do that to your husband and you know for me I was just always too shocked because did that happen yes it happened did I push him yes it happened but why did I push him I really was trying to 
he was choking me to the wall. I mean, and that's why I said the sequence of the story. And, you know, that was kind of, I, I saw that he had a way of always um, bringing out only one thing when he talks about situations and always made me look like the bad person, you know. So until other people started experiencing him themselves, they would not believe me when I say stuff. And I didn't know how to tell stories, you know. Then I was, you know, I'm trying to say it and I don't even know how to explain myself. And so people would believe him more because first and foremost, I'm not, you know, like I'm like, okay, God will judge. God was there. That was my conclusion of almost everything I said because I'm like, wow. You know, I was there, like, except something was wrong with me when those situations happened. And Because, yeah, it's possible to think there is something, you know, really wrong with you. Like, did you, are you losing your mind exactly. kind of thing? So at this point, you started to say to yourself, you know, that. Yeah. So um, for me, the, the breaking point was actually the fifth time, which is about five years ago now. Um, I said to myself, because, you know, like I had had enough. I was scared to go home in the evenings. When I picked up my son from school, I was just like, you know, I don't want to go home or let him be sleeping by the time I get home. And so I would pick up my son from school and drive around the city, sometimes just go to the mall and just go and while away the time because he was like a time bomb waiting to explode every time. And I just, I didn't want, I just didn't want any trouble. You know, like work was hard, but home was harder. So I'll just come back home, you know, like that's later in the day. That's crazy, sir. It's cursing. That means you're in constant stress. Exactly. Because there was no time to relax. So one of the things yeah. I tell people is, you know, home should be a place where you go to relax after yeah. you've experienced a whole lot of yeah. stress at work. Yeah. So if work was hard and home was yeah. harder, yeah. that's a constant state of Absolutely. cortisol being Absolutely. released. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, in that period, of course, I developed health challenges, you know, my blood pressure, was you know i can imagine that's why yeah. i had to bring that up yeah. because when you have constant cortisol in, yeah. you're in a constant state of flight mm -hmm. and i mean and fright and fright yeah that's yeah that's ridiculous yeah but that was that was me you know and um again this time five years ago my phone had been seized again <laughs> and so did he accuse you of um oh, infidelity. infidelity yes because yes. you well i don't even know why it <sighs> I mean, what wasn't I accused of, actually? And of course, I was staying out late. And I just explained why I was staying out late. Because, I mean, but then will I take my son out and stay out late? The other thing was, I always say, I say, when I before I got married to him, in the spirit of humility, I was a well-sought-after young, you know, spinster then. You know, but then I was, I kind of told him about everybody and I was very open. He was my first relationship. You know, although I had many suitors, you know, so I'm like, if I did not live this kind of life before I got married, you know, you know, having extramarital affairs at, or, you know, whatever, you know, why would I do it when I'm married? So when he started accusing me of that, I would just like, I mean, ignore. And then he seized my phone, I guess, trying to search for his, um, to prove himself right. You know, I mean, I, I was not worried that he sees my phone. I was just worried that if a repeat of what happened in Nigeria happened, what would I do? How would I get out of, you know, the situation? So he had seized my phone for almost a week and I had gotten home that day and it was just a long story. You know, like I said, he moved into my, into my house and I was paying the rent. It wasn't like he was paying or contributing to the house, you know, but, um, 
maybe he did for one or two months and then stopped and i mean the house was in my name so i had to keep paying and all of that you know and he was locking me out of the bedroom but it's okay i was sleeping with my son you know that day i got back here i changed the locks from or removed the locks from the bedroom like the house was like something was being sought you know like there was a searching going on i i didn't understand what was going on but you know i just had this fear come over me like what is he up to now and um i came into the house and he started patting me down i'm like i don't know what you know like like a tsa for real yes <laughs> okay so i'm like i don't i really don't know what's going on the next morning i had to break into the room where he was sleeping to get my clothes out because i'm like i don't know how long this is going to be where he will lock me out so like i broke into the room you know picked the keys or whatever and got out my stuff and put it in the living room like you know i would get out in the morning and you know at least breathe a little fresh air before coming back to all the madness in the house again and i woke up in the morning i saw that he had used the chair the sofa to block the entrance and he was sleeping on the sofa um and then i was i got into the bathroom i thought i locked the door to the bathroom all of a sudden i saw him in the bathroom you know and i was scared and the pants i put on you know the key was in the pocket and you know he came into the bathroom and took that and i was like wow that's the only key to the house i have so i went to collect my you know my key so as i went after him and i got the key because i knew exactly what it, where it was he just, you know, took my fingers and bent it all the way backwards until I had like a ligament tear. And of course, he had seized my phone. So I was in the house that day. I couldn't cry. I couldn't call for help. I couldn't do anything. I just said to myself, I will take my son's, I'll give my son a bath, take him to school and then figure out my life after this. You know, that was where I was. I, I gave my son a bath and I was ready to leave and he won't let us leave the house. Of course, my head was already ringing, like, I'm in trouble today. You didn't have your keys, you didn't have I your didn't phone. Have my, I didn't have my phone, I didn't have it, and I couldn't leave the house because he would, you know, he was sleeping on it. And I tried to, you know, maneuver my way, and he came and pushed me, you know, and all of that. And I was like, please, just let's go. Like, my hand was broken, you know, needed care, I was in excruciating pain, you know, but I was like, if, at least let me just get out of this house and get to safety first. Finally, one of my neighbors came from work and I saw him and I said to him, please just call the police for me, you know. You saw him through the windows? I saw him through the window and he called the police for me. That was how the police came and the police, you know, of course, you know, when they knocked the door a few times, he dragged the, the, um, the chair, the sofa from the door and let them in and of course I was the one that looked like the mad woman there. He looked very <laughs> and everything. And so I said to them, just wait, let me get out of the house and take my son. They said, well, they can't force the son to leave, you know, and the boy was really, daddy was like, oh no, just, you know, um, watch the iPad, watch your cartoons. You don't have to go to school. Just watch your cartoons. I was like, yay, no, no school, you know, he was happy to just have the iPad. And this is a boy that was like, you know, already saying, daddy, no, stop it and things like that. That's how he just got carried away and distracted. And he refused to go with me since he had, you know, he chose cartoon over school. And um, so I left. I left in a panic. And I just said to myself, this can't, you know, like, I'm not doing this again. 
you know, it had happened five times over in different formats. And I said to myself, I can't do this again. So I went to work that day, of course, in tears. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I was doing my PhD then. I think I was in my second year or third year of my PhD. And I, I wasn't productive. I went to talk to my mentor then and I said, I need to go to court, you know. So I went to court that day and I went to file for protection from abuse. had made my identity, instead of my identity in Christ, my identity was in being a wife. I remember one day I, I knelt down and I begged him and I'm like, please just let me go. You know, just release me. Because then my, I felt I, would, I felt my life, life was ebbing out of me. You know, and I was just like, just let me go. In times like that, he will just look at me and treat me like trash. I can't even imagine that I walked through the walk I walked then. I'm like, oh my God, you know, like how did I ever leave those years? You know, how did I, how did I survive? How did I come out with my mind still sane? That's the thing because the sanity of your mind, yeah. even after you come out, yeah. becomes a big deal. Absolutely. And I think that's what, you know, what we mean when we say, post-traumatic, you know, stress disorder, stress disorder because yes. it's not just for people who go to war. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is that there were many instances where if I would have died, if not for God. Yeah, it's so interesting what you said. And I want to make out a point here. You know, you said it's you almost lost your life. Mm-hmm. And I took a course in, in school, mm-hmm. one of my courses for human services counseling Mm -hmm. and it talks about death we're talking about euthanasia how that the different i mean should physicians assist people Mm -hmm. you know in their dying process should Mm -hmm. they hasten it or not Mm -hmm. and i had to learn the definition of death and there's Mm -hmm. this the cardiopulmonary death when the person stops breathing then there is um when the the brain vets when Mm -hmm. brain function ceases Mm -hmm. and then there's this definition of death the loss of personhood yeah i know yeah. now medically here we talk about the person being in a vegetative state mm-hmm. but in this case mm-hmm. i could actually argue that you did lose your life yeah because you lost your personhood you lost your value you lost your yeah. essence yeah. and you know when you talk about the time how that for a whole year you know you were just numb yeah. while you may have had breath in your nostrils and you know your whole blood vessels were working mm-hmm. your essence the essence of whom you really are yeah. was lost mm-hmm. i really feel like you were reborn <laughs> I, I really yeah. do feel like you know you were like a cat who had nine lives you had to <laughs> literally get born again and get leave again i feel like it was a rebirth i feel like you literally did lose your life mm-hmm. in all of that and you know for anyone out there who's listening um, it's not till breath stops going through your nostrils that life is lost. Absolutely. Because in this case, I feel like you really did lose your life. So let's talk about how you began to, how your rebirth yeah. really yeah. you know, began to happen. Mm-hmm. I know you, you alluded to your support system, yeah. but what are the things that you would say helped you get to be reborn? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I had to first see, you know, the truth of who I was, you know, um, 
I get, uh, and I'll, I'll be very honest. First, I found myself in God, and then I found me again. You know, and, you know, and that's why, and I'm saying this out there to the church community. You know, let's let's learn to to love people, and I mean, if we don't have words of life to say, let's just hold back and not say anything. You know, because sometimes we, when people are going through situations like that, it's a lot for them. A lot of people don't even know the stories of those people. You know, but then you you hear things that kind of bring you, make you feel condemned. You know, by the people that are supposed to be your church family or people that are supposed to be fellow Christians. I heard life from church, or let me not say church, from Christians, and I heard things that could have put me back in captivity from Christians. But at the same time, I had a beautiful support system. And I think the best thing that happened to me was that I had to forgive him. And I, you know, you did what? I forgave him. And when I forgave him, so I, I, did not forgive him to the point of going back, okay. you know, so let's just be very clear. <laughs> yeah. But I had to let go for me to be healed, you know, and it took a long time. Like I, I didn't go to him and say, I forgive you, but I, in the place of prayer and I had to call his name and say, I forgive you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is very complex mm-hmm. and packed. Mm-hmm. When you say you had to forgive him, for you to be able to get healed. I want to ask a question. Mm-hmm. Has he forgiven you? I I don't know and I don't care. So so <laughs> that means that forgiveness is it was irrespective of the person whom you're forgiving. So it wasn't like you didn't need to receive forgiveness from him to be able to forgive no, him. And he no. didn't need to receive your forgiveness. No, no. It didn't matter. Again, for me, you know, like when I when every, when we look at this very objectively, the person that had been wronged was me. Okay, like and and I'm not saying this because it's me. You know, like we've actually gone over this with um with a number of people seated. And again, like I said, I wasn't perfect, but I guess it was clear to all that I I loved. You know, and I put in my all. It was obvious that I had put in my best and. At least if we say that there were 100% wrongs, 90% came from him. And, you know, I said to myself, God, whatever I did not do maturely, you know, forgive me as well. But I had to forgive him. And in forgiving him, sincerely, I received my healing. And it did not matter. So that's why sometimes till today, he still does a lot of very interesting things. But I just look at him and I say, is that consistent with his behavior? It's consistent. Okay, so... I mean, I'm not, should I be upset? Because before, when I hear from him or anything, I get so upset and all of that. I just said to myself, there's no need wasting my emotions anymore, you know. And then I said, leaving, you know, like so many times I, I discovered my giggly self. I discovered my playful side, you know. I discovered me as a person because then I was so serious, very, you know. But I discovered me again, you know, like I discovered there was more to life. I, I actually desired to live. I felt young on my inside, you know. And um, the testimony of it also is that things began to work in my life. I was really struggling in every area before, but then I began to have a lot of headway breakthroughs, you know, on every side. I have I have people that kind of are mentors to me. Pastor for me, my pastor is, you know, um, she's been a great man, silent, silent mentor and warrior. 
but you know she she doesn't know she said a lot of things she would not speak too many times speak once or twice and you know once most of the time you know and she would just keep quiet and my parents have been wonderful as well i have to say because like they have been constantly there again so true i, I i'm sorry to cut it but i think i really want to give um kudos to them yes because yeah. you know there's something you alluded to earlier how mm-hmm. that you feared disappointing them yeah and that is something a lot of us live with mm-hmm. now when whatever it is you feared when you now face it mm-hmm. and they're able to make you feel like i am not disappointed i'm yeah. still proud of you and you're yeah. able to be you with mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. i think that's a lot of credit to them because many parents would have made you really feel like you disappointed them mm-hmm. and you would have been ostracized even from them. Some mm. people would, you know, get to the point that you are reborn mm. and they would be here without their parents mm. around because mm. they couldn't do this with them. Yeah. So that they are still, you know, a strong part of your life oh, and yeah. still here with you yeah. in the state. I think it's a whole lot of credit. Oh, yes. Know, to My them. parents actually, you know, um, they've stood with me all the way. That's the truth. They've constantly stood with me. I love you more than that. I can imagine. I can imagine. I really do. Yeah, they've been and like my parents. There's no week I don't talk to my both my parents, and there's no day I don't talk to my mom, especially. I remember that when I decided to get married again, if you know God allows it, well, He's told me He will. So, (laughs) Asian American black wherever you are. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, side joke. No, that's interesting. (laughs) And um. When I decided to, you know, get married again, they had come to spend some time with me. And I was just like, see those guys, they've been together for 38, 39 years. Actually, yeah, going to 40 years. They should be 40 years next year. And um, I look at them and I'm like, wow. You know, I, I desire to get married just seeing them together again. And these are my parents. So they're not people that will hide themselves from me. And yet I look at them and I'm like, wow. I mean, now that is beautiful. And even though we've gotten to the part of the story where we're talking about your rebirth, mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, you find your giggly self and mm-hmm. all of that, I would not want to take us back to a more similar part but I want to bring out something which is said now that is very important which is how that many of us go into marriages Mm -hmm. with certain expectations certain images in our minds Mm -hmm. your parents are getting to what 40 years together next year and you desire to be like damn Mm -hmm. and many of us have these desires how I want my man to treat me Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. I want him to be how I want my marriage to be and sometimes in marriages or in relationships we react because we are not seeing what we Mm. expected you know the reality is far from Mm. the expectation Mm. and many people are unable to live with the reality because it doesn't look like what they were thinking for you now you know your reality it's not going to be, oh, like your parents, which is what you've always dreamed. Yeah. However, the case might be, it's just not going to be like that. Mm-hmm. But how did you get to the point where you can have expectations that would not be real to you, but nevertheless, yeah. accept what is your reality, mm-hmm. be happy with it, mm-hmm. and still be happy with 
you know, whatever those expectations are like, yeah. I'm happy for my parents. My, our story is not going to be the same. Yeah. I'm not going to be in a wedding and they're going to ask me, you know, never been divorced for instance, and I'm going to get up. It's not going to be me. Mm-hmm. But how are you now comfortable in your skin with the way your story is, even yeah. though it's not what yeah. you have always dreamed? How yeah. did you get to this point? So, I mean, I guess, I again, I feel like that cat that has... <laughs> nine lives really but, you do. no but you know um i think for me it's the fact that i feel like my past doesn't hold me down it doesn't hold me down and i remember for the longest time i was like oh who would who wants to marry a divorced woman who wants to marry you know a, ma- a woman with with a kid you know and all of that so i kind of looked down on myself because again like i said I, I i struggled with self-esteem in my marriage so sometimes i look at myself in the mirror and i'm like wow god you did a good job <laughs> <laughs> you know and i tell myself talk where you're beautiful i don't wait for somebody else to tell me i'm beautiful i don't wait for somebody to tell me i'm good you know I tell myself those things every day when I look in the mirror. Whatever happens right now, I keep affirming myself. And so it doesn't matter what anybody says to me. I look in the mirror and I know who I see. And so I think for me, that's one life lesson that I have learned, you know, along the way and from the mistakes I made in my past. Because why did my self-esteem get so bashed? It was because I looked to him to affirm who I was. And, you know, you said something how that, you know, you were hearing his voice more. But now the way you get to affirm yourself and talk to yourself is simply a case of deciding what voice you want to be louder in your head. People, life is talking to you at every point. People are talking to you in different ways. And you want to hear your voice louder affirming mm. yourself that is that is um really remarkable and we see your giggly side again <laughs> we see i mean we started off talking about how you love flowers again yes so smell the roses <laughs> yes smell and the roses <laughs> it's it's really remarkable mm. um you have your home now and mm. you're pursuing your third doctorate <laughs> that is also very very um remarkable and mm-hmm. i love how that you say you know you're poised you're ready for life mm-hmm. um there's something i just want to wrap this up with which is i'm i'm gonna ask you for what you think you would say to someone who is where you were mm-hmm. six years ago and i know you say it's been five years yeah. so let's say six years ago yeah what you would have to say to that lady mm-hmm. right now or maybe even if it's a guy mm-hmm. um I want to know what you want to say to them. And I, while you're thinking about that, <laughs> the reason I'm bringing that up is it could be a very difficult place to be in Absolutely. because many people wouldn't understand mm. what it feels like. People would have questions like, why didn't you do X? Why didn't you do Y? Why didn't you do Z? Call it what it is, you know, a lot of the times we, we, we're not able to, you know, come to the place of getting for help because, you know, like, for example, if you're having, um, you know, some people have cancer in the brain and they say, I have a headache, you know, and they're just like, no, headache is all it is, you know, but if you're using Tylenol to treat something that needs radiation or chemotherapy or surgery, you're not, um, you're not treating what's, and it's not going to go. 
you know. Tell me about it. Um, so, I mean, even though that's extreme and we're people of faith and all of that, you don't have to remain in that situation is what I'm saying to people, you know. So call it what it is. Let's not call things what they're not. So that's the first thing. Another thing that happens in most of the situation is that we, when we're going through those things, we, are, we either isolate ourselves or we, we are isolated, you know. But this is the time you really need help. You need to reach out to people, no matter what. Because I remember I was being isolated by force. And again, out of the shame of what I was going through, I couldn't reach out to people because I couldn't imagine telling them what I was going through, you know. So don't isolate. That's the time, you know, you need help. Yell out for help. Reach out to someone, you know. And in reaching out for help, sometimes you reach out for help to the wrong people. But just reach out for help. Like we need to reach out and we have to talk. The third thing is, um, I mean, look at yourself and tell yourself, I'm loved and I don't deserve this. God, God wants more from me than I'm going through right now. Because if not, you will never walk away. And Christians, I mean, you know, of course we have to pray and really ask God for directions and all of that. I mean, and I prayed, I was, I was a Christian, you know. Um, things didn't turn out the way I wanted it to be. But when I needed to leave, I asked God, I had prayed, I'd fasted for him. You know, I'd done everything I could, you know, took him, you know, maybe this is mental health challenge. I had kind of, you know, encouraged him to seek help. I'd done everything that I knew I could as an individual. And still it wasn't turning out. I had to tell myself it was time to leave. If God does not condemn you, there's nobody, there's nobody's condemnation that would should mean anything to you. True. And I had to get to that point. I had people that said to me, go and beg him. What's the meaning of this? You know, <laughs> husbands beat wives. You know, I heard all sorts. But, I mean, initially, that was the shame I didn't want to identify with. But at some point, I could look them in the face. If you have a daughter, do you, would you actually sincerely want anybody to be in the same situation I was? So discover who you are in Christ and it gives you a boldness. He gives you the grace to walk out when you need to walk out of it. Because I mean, sometimes some people need to walk away for a little time for things to get better. In a case like mine, I had to walk away permanently. It's a funny, so the way I structure my podcast is such that different people will have different things that they would pick, mm -hmm. different things that would mean something to them. Mm -hmm. You know, what am I set out thinking is a goal I want people to get. Might not even be what some other people might pick out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I want to ask you one funny question, though. I expect that there must have been a time where you kind of like blamed God. When did you forgive God? Or how did you forgive God? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess for me, I I kept asking myself, why me? That was it. You know? That's a question a lot of people yeah, would ask. I asked, my, I asked that question a lot and I said, why me? But then at the point where I saw... I saw beauty for ashes, you know, because now there's some things like, I mean, now I look at my life and I'm like, it's a turnaround. And I appreciate more of the turnaround in my life because of the things I've been through. I blamed God um, in quotes that period, but I also saw that the only way I could survive that was with his strength. Well, with his strength. Yes, because I couldn't, there was no how. Like, sincerely, I, you know, where you feel like your life is going out of you I felt that way a number of times there was a time that I mean and I say this and I, I think I must have been going off a little mentally I'm, and I'm very serious because there was a time I couldn't stay in a place by myself you know 
I'll look outside and I'll be seeing the image of a mad woman that looked just like me. Yeah, so it was, I, I was going through so much trauma, it was affecting me in many different ways. But, but God, before I used to think I would be that divorced woman, that single woman, that girl that could not keep a home. But that's not my name. That's, that's not who I see, you know? And like, I mean, I say people want to identify with me, you know, instead of shame, because God has made something out of my life and God can bring, God will bring beautiful things out of our life if we trust in him. So if you're out there, you know, you're going through stuff. I want you to know that God can bring beauty out of your life. And you don't have to stay in ministry. You know, you really don't have to. Um, you can trust God and he can change your story just like he did mine. Okay, guys, I'm just going to pick out on a few things that really struck me and I feel like I was repeating again. Personal failure. Think about it. The fact that you're a doctor does not mean that you can never get sick. Right? So, the fact that you're someone who has helped other people come out of pains in your relationship, you've given counsel before, or maybe you're a Christian and you've talked to people like Dr. Tabwe was, you probably have preached against this. That does not mean that your own relationship cannot go south. The fact that you're an authority in one thing doesn't mean that you cannot become um, captive of the same thing. So if your relationship or your marriage is one that domestic abuse is prevalent, do not take it as a personal failure. It is not on you. It is not a personal failure. Walking out of a violent situation does not account for that. So do what you got to do. Another thing that struck me from what we just talked about is how that people who are going through domestic violence begin to think about how the children will grow up. They don't want the children to grow without a father figure or they don't want them to grow up without a mother. You know, these things are real. But the honest truth is that we are custodians for our children. Children who grow up with both parents are not guaranteed to turn out the way we expect them to. So, who says that growing up without the parents is a guarantee of failure? I'm not saying that they should. But I'm saying that that is not reason enough for you to say you would keep yourself in harm's way till your own death. It's not reason enough. It takes a village to raise a child, not just two parents. It takes a village. So that should not hold you back. And to a large extent, kudos to all the single mothers and all the single fathers out there doing a great job. Um, of course, two is better than one. But if your life is at risk, walk away and by God's grace help is going to come a village will come to help you raise that child next I'll talk about cultures how that many marriages and relationships seems to be investments of families and because of how many people are invested in your relationships and how many people are involved in it 
many times walking away, even when your life is in danger, even when your sanity is at stake, seems to be very difficult. If it's dangerous, walk away, count your losses, and start over again. Sometimes people get provoked and people respond differently. And that's understandable. People eventually also learn self-restraint and self-discipline. And sometimes they don't learn early. So it's okay when we see an effort from the abuser trying, you know, not to ever repeat the physical abuse. Um, but when the physical abuse is persistent and when the physical abuse is connected with financial abuse and emotional abuse it is an abuse walk away it's not just that he hits you when you are provoked no not just that um, but he hits you he's abusing you he's controlling he's trying to isolate you it's persistent it's continual that's abuse um, and when it happens the first time and you see the signs don't live in denial. Call it what it really is. Abuse. And I'm going to tell you something as an abuser, or rather as an abused. The honest truth is that if you stay in it, it begins to impact your health. Research has shown us today that a lot of people who come from abused homes or who have experienced intimate partner violence, IPV, many times are at higher risk of heart diseases, high blood pressure, and many terminal diseases, cancers, obesity, and they're also potentially very, very suicidal. So that is why intimate partner violence is actually a public health concern. And for you as an abuser, you just have to seek help and seek therapy. It beats my imagination many times when people who abuse others refuse therapy. That just tells me that it is their lifestyle. It is what they want to do. They know what they're doing and they want to keep doing it. You are almost not just an abuser anymore. You're almost a murderer <laughs> because you're killing people and snatching lives and destinies away from people. We are not sure how you got to where you are right now, but here you are. Next step is for you to make sure you're sick counsel, get therapy, get help. Not help from your partner whom you've been abusing. Just leave them alone, but go get help from a professional. You need help. You're sick. You need to be treated. That's just the honest truth. You're sick and you need to be treated. You might need to go through some CBTs, some cognitive behavioral therapies, whatever the case might be, but seek help, please. Seek help seek help now i know that there are many hotlines for domestic violence around the globe and i know i have listeners from everywhere from nigeria united kingdom australia um china and of course here in the united states i'm not sure what the numbers are wherever you are but i'm very sure that google knows so you can ask professor google and you'll be able to find out what the hotline is 
where you are, but I know that here in the United States, if you're experiencing domestic violence, you want to call the hotline, it's 1-800-799-SAFE. Again, the number is 1-800-799-7233. And um, I really wish you the best. I really want to see you living your life and being all that you were born to be. I really want to see you living the limitless version of yourself. I really want to see you enjoying life and living it to the full. That's why I do what I do. And um, go out there, take very good care of yourself. All right, everyone. Thanks a lot for tuning in to today's episode of the show. I really appreciate your time and your heart. If you got any questions, you can email me at Henry here at realfitness.tv. Henry here at realfitness.tv. Or you can leave me a message on Instagram, Real Fitness Club. That's my handle on Instagram, at Real Fitness Club. You can leave me a message right there. And um, you can also leave me a comment right here, wherever you're listening to me from Spotify or Apple. That's how to reach out to me. And um, I hope to keep giving you great content. Thanks for your time and your heart again. Don't forget to share this with people. And please, please leave me a comment. I want to know what this meant to you and how you you know, took this. Thanks again, guys. I really appreciate it. This is your fitness and lifestyle coach, the one and only Henry again. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao for now. Now you said something and you said it in passing. Mm-hmm. You were saying something like, you know, you're available um, Asian American. <laughs> Asian American black. <laughs> Asian American black. Wait, so all of these in one person. All of them in one person. No. Asian American black person. <laughs> okay. So if you're out there, you're Asian American black, we're taking applications. Screening. Um, <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> well, that's beautiful, though.